Let's stand together. Now, just, um, just a, let's stand. Uh, just sort of a heads up here. Um, if you have the story Bible and you've been reading it or you're doing a Bible study uh, through as we are working through your part of a life group, uh, you're going to find that this sermon today does not fit into any of those Bible studies, and here's why. Uh, Easter's coming, and in order to get Easter to work in uh, correlation with the story, Good Friday, uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday morning, uh, I had to add a sermon, but it's one that I wanted to add, and I'll get to that in just a moment. We're going to read the last six verses of the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 4, and I'm reading the brown, and I'm a little worried about this slide up here, because uh, that one is not the one, this is the one, uh, and I'm reading the brown, and you're going to read white, we just got two slides, so you got to read right off the hop. Here we go. This is what it says. Surely the days the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays or in its wings, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, we pause again today to acknowledge that you are here in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we ask that, Lord, and we thank you for all that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ, and Lord, that you have made that applicable and available and possible in our lives. And now we ask for the same Holy Spirit to give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, but we also ask that as we go out from this place, into our homes, our marriages, our families, where we work, where we go to school, where we get our services, that the same Holy Spirit would help us to live out in tangible, physical, and meaningful ways what it means to be the disciples, the followers, to be Christians of Jesus Christ. And in his name, we ask these mercies Amen. You may be seated. So this is sort of uh, part one of chapter 22. Um, and this is, uh, the title today is called The 400 Silent Years. Now, um, as I said a moment ago, this is an addition to the story. And there is no Bible study material available on what I call the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there's a timeline here, 
And the timeline, we have been through all the way through here. We are right here today, this little line right here. And that little line right there is the break, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that gap, believe it or not, is 400 years long, four centuries. Now, how many of you knew that there was a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Raise your hand. Not many of us, but some of us. Uh, how many have ever heard a sermon on the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Anybody? One? One person. I have never heard one, and I have never preached one ever before. And so this 400-year gap between the Testaments, the Old and New, is called the Silent Years. Now, there's other names that, they, that is given to these 400 silent years, like the, inter, uh, the technical name is the intertestamental period. There it is right there. And of course, it's pretty obvious why that is the case. And the second name is, uh, is this name. It's called the Deuterocanonical Period. The Deuterocanonical Period. Uh, let me explain what that means is um, the reason why Protestants, we, uh, call it the 400 silent years is because there was no revelation of God. Nothing was written down by anybody as regarding to the inspired Word of God, the Scriptures. There's nothing. There's just silence. And this is called the intertestamental period, but it's also called the deuterocanonical period because the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Eastern Churches all believe that during this time, and it is historical reality, that it was during this time that the Old Testament books of the Apocrypha, I'm having trouble here. Can you advance that for me, please? There you go. Thank you. So the Apocrypha were written during these 400 years. As Protestants, as Pentecostals, as Evangelicals, we don't, uh, we, don't have, uh, we don't hold to that. We don't see them as inspired. Matter of fact, the word deutero, deuterocanonical means another canon of Scripture or a second canon of Scripture. And of course, if you, we, they are not in our Bibles, but if you read a, a New Jerusalem Bible, you will find these number of additional um, biblical texts that are called the Apocrypha, um, which is the second canon or another canon, but you will not find them in our Bibles. Now, however, while the time between the Old and New Testament, the 400 years, is called the silent years, we're going to find out this morning that they are anything but that. They are anything but silent, silent, that God is anything but silent, and in fact, that we will discover that God is very active during the 400 silent years. And that brings us to this, to our text, which I call end to the end of the beginning. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Our text this morning is from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And of course, obviously, Malachi lived and wrote 400 years before Jesus. Malachi ends, the book of Malachi ends, chapter 4 ends with three things. First of all, a reminder 
The reminder is simply for the people of God, Israel's family nation, to remember the law of Moses, to be faithful to God's law. The second thing that it gives us is that it gives us a promise. And the promise is that God is going to send the prophet Elijah. Now we know, of course, that, and I want you to keep this in the filing cabinet of your mind as we go through, that when we talk about biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy can have many different outcomes. A lot of biblical prophecy does not just have one outcome, one fulfillment. There can be multiple fulfillments, and we see that here in the book of Malachi. God says that I am going to send my prophet Elijah, and he does that literally. Because we know that when we get to Matthew chapter 17, we know that Elijah and Moses is literally going to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. We also know that in Revelation chapter 11 verses um, 1 to the end of the chapter that Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses. Moses is going to be the other one. And uh, so we understand that when, when Malachi talks about Elijah, he's talking about the literal Elijah, the person, the man. But he's also, when Matthew, when Malachi talks about Elijah, he's also talking about Elijah figuratively. And when Malachi talks about Elijah, he's really talking about John the Baptist. Now in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, and speaks to him, he is going to quote exactly what Malachi says. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And he will go on before the Lord, talking about Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Almost a direct quotation of the words, the prophecy of Malachi 400 years earlier. And, and Jesus, of course, confirms this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, when he says this. And these are some of the most powerful words in the entire New Testament. And they deserve some time to, to uh, work through, and we don't have that time this morning. But just listen to the, the words of this text. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not arisen, not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a great statement when it says in the Old Testament that Moses was the greatest of the prophets. But then he says this, he says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. But whoever is in the New Testament is greater than John the Baptist. And Jesus goes on to say these words. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people has been raiding it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now, Malachi, the angel Gabriel, and Jesus tells us that as Elijah was to Elisha in the Old Testament, John the Baptist 
will be toward Jesus. And John the Baptist will do three things when he comes. First of all, he will clear the way for Jesus. That's what John tells us. The second thing is that he will prepare the way. Isaiah says, and he quotes it in John, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then the last thing John will do is he will get out of the way. And John says that I must decrease and Jesus must increase. And then finally, the Old Testament closes with a warning. A warning for us. A warning for Israel's family nation. And the warning is simply this, that that God will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents. And then he adds this, he says, or else I will come and I will strike the land with total destruction. And there's a whole thing in there about family structure and marriage and all that, and we don't have time to get into that this morning. And so with this reminder and with this promise and with this warning, the Old Testament comes to a close. But history will prove that as we have seen many times over the last weeks and through the Old Testament, that Israel's family nation will not heed the instruction of Malachi. They will indeed forget the promises of God and they will experience again significant challenges and sadly they will experience spiritual decline. But here's the good news. God has not given up on them. And God is not finished with them as he is not finished with us. God has not given up on you. God has not given up on me. God has not given up on your kids. God has not given up on your grandkids. God has not given up on our marriages. God has not given up on our families. God is not finished with them and he's not finished with us. In fact, the greatest event is yet ahead. But in the meantime, the so-called 400 silent years will be a time of preparation. During these four centuries, Israel's family nation, the Jews will come under the influence and the control of six powers. And those six powers are these. They will come under the power of Persia. They will come under the power of Greece, Egypt, Syria, the Maccabeans. And they will come under the power of the Romans. Five of these six, five of these six, will God will use as instruments of preparation. Five of these six will be absolutely crucial for what God is doing to prepare the way for what is coming in the New Testament, which is the greatest event of all. Daniel says this. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his He changes times and seasons. I wish we wouldn't do that in Ontario, by the way. 
He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And nowhere is that more true than in the so-called gap between the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the question is, what do these five of six powers contribute to this time of preparation? Well, we already know what the contribution of the Persians is, and that is their foreign policy. God will inspire the great Cyrus, king of Persia. After 50 years of captivity, he will inspire Cyrus to release Israel's family nation so that they can leave Babylon, they can leave Persia, and they can go home to Judea, and they can go home to Israel, and they can go home to Jerusalem. That's the beginning of the preparation. Then Greece also will make a profound contribution to God's preparation time. Greece will contribute what we refer to as a common language. Alexander the Great is considered to be the greatest of all conquerors in written history. Until Alexander the Great, the nations in the known world were still in the throes of what was what it was like at the tower of babylon at the tower of babel that the people all spoke different dialects and different language and they didn't understand one another particularly well but john the brother alexander the great God would use Alexander the Great to create a universal language in the known world. And under his influence, under Alexander the Great's influence, the Western world would begin to speak and would begin to study the Greek language. This process of adopting Greek culture and the Greek language and the Greek religion was called Hellenization. And this Hellenization became so prevalent and became so powerful and became so uh, influential that it existed until the time of Jesus, until the time of Paul, and even today in Canada, in North America, in the Western world, in Europe, we are still living with the Hellenization, the influx and the influence of Greek culture and Greek language and Greek religion. We still live with it today. The language was called Koine Greek. And Alexander was great, one of the greatest conquerors in the known world in written history, and he created a common language, and that common language is Koine Greek. Why is that important? Because Koine Greek would be the language that every person would learn and would know and would speak. Our New Testament Bible is written in Alexander the Great's language. And that's why even today, pastors and scholars and teachers and Bible teachers still study Koine Greek. I have taken eight different courses of the Greek language because the Bible was originally written in Koine Greek. And so here's how it works. It was the everyday language of the people. 
Jesus spoke Koine Greek. Paul spoke Koine Greek. And as I said, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. And that means for the first time ever, the Bible, the Scriptures, the New Testament would be available to every single person in the known world because everybody spoke and understood Greek. And even those that are illiterate, and there were many in the known world who were illiterate, when they had it read to them, they could understand it. They, could, they, could, they knew what was being said. They understood the Scriptures for the first time in their own language. And in a word, God through the Greeks and through Alexander the Great, there's only one word that can describe this universal language, and that is absolutely genius. It was brilliant. Only God could have engineered in such a way that Alexander and, the, and Greece would provide a language so that the scriptures would be available to every person in the known world. But of course, if you know anything about history and Alexander the Great, he died at the young age of 32 years old. And Daniel's words come back to us again where it says God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. Following the Greeks came the Egyptians for just a short time. Their contribution wasn't that great, but who followed the Egyptians were the Syrians. Now, ironically, the contribution of the Syrians to God's preparation time was this, persecution. When Israel's nation, when Israel's family nation came under the influence and the control of Syria, things went from bad to awful. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came to power. And he came to Jerusalem in an absolute rage. And he was bent and determined that he was going to destroy everything that made the Jewish people and religion and nation unique. And he set out systematically to actually destroy every distinctive characteristic of the Jewish faith. And once again, we see it over and over again. Anti-Semitism and genocide over and over and over again. And we see it under Antiochus Epiphanes. He does a number of things. First of all, he stops all sacrifices. He outlawed the right of circumcision. He canceled the Sabbath observance. He destroyed, he tried to destroy every single copy of the Hebrew Bible. Jews were forced to eat pork and they were forced to make sacrifices to idols. But his final act and his greatest act of sacrilege was his undoing. He actually built a temple and offered a sacrifice to the Greek god Zeus in the holy place of the temple. And that would be his ruin. Scores, literally scores of Jewish people died as a result of the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. 
This leads us to the Maccabean period. And the Maccabean contribution to God's preparation time is what we call independence. An elderly priest by the name of Mattathias Maccabee had five sons and they lived in a village northwest of Jerusalem. When, an, when a Syrian official came to enforce the non-Jewish sacrifice in their village, Maccabee revolted. He killed the Syrian uh, official and he also killed all the Jews that were renegade and went along with this. And finally he fled to the mountains and literally thousands and thousands of Jews followed with him. And history records that this is one of the most noble demonstrations of holy jealousy for the honor of God. Now historically this is referred to as the Maccabean Revolt. The Revolt. Mattathias dies. He has five sons. Three come to power. Their names are Judas, Jonathan, and the last one is Simon. Under Simon's influence in 165 BC, 165 years before Jesus, Simon raises up an army and they take back Jerusalem. They cleanse the temple and they restore biblical worship. Now this event is commemorated in the festival of Hanukkah or the festival of dedication. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Now Hanukkah is, celebrates this victory over the Syrians. But Hanukkah really represents the restoration of the temple. Matter of fact, Hanukkah literally means restoration. And what happened is there was a miracle. There was only enough oil for the holy lamp of God in the temple to burn for one day. And it miraculously burned for eight days. And as a result of that, the Jews celebrate the festival of Hanukkah. Now what most people don't know and surprises them that Hanukkah is actually in the New Testament. That Jesus himself actually celebrated Hanukkah. Now it's not called Hanukkah in the New Testament. It's called this, the Festival of Dedication. And it's in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 22 to 23. Now, there's also this. So are you following me okay? I know there's a lot of history here, but I think it's important because most Christians don't understand what happens in the 400 silent years. So follow me through on this for a little bit. Okay. So there's also this. There is a man by the name of, we did Simon. There's a name, man by the name of John Hurricanus. John Hurricanus was, was the high priest and governor in Jerusalem, but he was not of Aaron's line, as we looked at in the Old Testament, and he was not of the line of King David. Actually, Hurricanus actually installed himself as the king. Now, the Orthodox Jews, they would not ever recognize any high priest 
who actually used politics, power, and money to get the position. They would not accept any high priest that was not of the line of the family of Aaron, and they would not accept any king that was not of the family line of King David. And Hyrcanus was neither, neither of Aaron's line, neither was he of David's line. And so the Orthodox Jews rose up. Who do you think they were? The Pharisees were the first group. And now we'll hear a lot about the Pharisees in the New Testament. And we'll, you'll notice that when you read through the Gospels, you notice that it is the Pharisees that will give Jesus the greatest difficulty and the hardest time. But there's another group. The Sadducees. The Sadducees actually, actually supported Hyrcanus, and the Sadducees are the one that will give the Apostle Paul the greatest difficulty in the book of Acts. Now, the final power, the sixth power, is the one that we know the best, and that is the Romans. The Romans brought a number of things, contributions, important pieces to God's preparation puzzle. And two of those was roads and stable government. The other thing they brought was the rule of law. There was this thing in Rome called the Pax Romana. It meant that you, any Roman citizen could walk the world and they would not be uh, assaulted. If they were, there would be severe punishment for the people who assaulted a Roman citizen. But God is using these powers and God is using the Romans for the single greatest event in human history. And that is... The arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the proclamation of his good news throughout all the world. And in order for that to happen, there will need to be a road system. And thanks to Caesar and thanks to the Romans, they gave a road system. You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to. It's true. But it's also true that all roads lead away from Rome. The Romans built roads all over the kingdom, including Judea and Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph would have taken Roman roads to get to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and to Nazareth. Now, as John Wood once said, God could have borrowed a helicopter from the 21st century to get Mary and Joseph where he needed to get them and get them back to where he needed to get them, but he didn't do that, did he? No. God used Roman roads. Jesus would have walked on Roman roads. The Magi would have walked on Roman roads. And when it came to getting the word out, when it came to spreading the gospel, Paul and the disciples, they would use Roman roads, the same roads. God's plan needed roads. And thanks to the Romans, 
an adequate system of roads was in place. But here's what most people don't know, and I didn't know this. <laughs> Excuse me. For the first time in history, those roads were paved. Once Rome fell, we would not have paved roads again until around the 17th, 16th, 17th century. So when Galatians says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Part of that fullness of time, that set time being come, was the fact that there needed to be roads. Now, but we have a problem. And our problem is this. We got Mary and Joseph, this young couple, We've got them in Nazareth. And in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled and in order for things to work out, we got to get them to Bethlehem. And that's a long trudge. That's a long walk. Well, stable government is the answer. Because with stable government comes this. Taxes. Right? We would hope that some of our taxes would fix some of our roads, but maybe we need to learn from the Romans. That's a whole other thing. Isn't it ironic that the most logical, natural, supernatural thing that God could do was use taxes to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? Now, in order for there to be taxes, there has to be something else. There's got to be what? A census. And Luke says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And Mary and Joseph took Roman roads to go to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the line of David and he had to register so that Caesar Augustus could keep his stable government with taxes. You see, what we're learning here is this, that the so-called silent years are not really that, sol- that silent. That God is incredibly active. And it's a great time of preparation, but we're also learning this. Six nations, five of which, or six powers, five of which will be absolutely essential in the preparation process of getting the Son of God to the earth. And we are reminded of the word in Proverbs. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water. And he channels toward all who please him. I was reading in Psalm 68 yesterday where it says that God sees the nations. He watches the nations. I mean, do we not think that God knows what's going on in our world? If a God can use five powers to create an inquire system to prepare for the coming of the Son of God, do you not think that he's got our world in his hand? God moved Pharaoh to let his people go. God moved Cyrus to let his people go. 
And God moved Caesar Augustus so that his people could go. So, the final piece is set in place. And in all that took place, the 400 silent years are really not that silent. So what do we say? What do we say in our lives? The first thing that we say is this, that God is never silent. That God is never inactive in our lives. We, when we think that God is silent and that God is inactive, nothing could be further from the truth. I've got some family members that are not Christians. You couldn't convince me for a moment that God is not at work in their lives. And even though sometimes everything speaks to the opposite of that, contrary to that, God is active and working in their lives and in your family and in our families. And we may add one more piece to this. When we think that things are against us, as sometimes it feels that, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel sometimes that just, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong? You know what I'm talking about? It just feels like that sometimes. Understand that it feels like that is not always the fact. But here's the deal. Even when we think things are against us, This is a time of preparation in our lives. And the last thing is simply this, what this calls for, to believe that God is not silent, to believe that God is not inactive, to believe that when everything is against us, that it is a preparation time in our lives for something else. It takes faith, Belief and trust. Faith, belief, and trust. I have faith to believe that God is not silent, that he's active, that he's preparing. I believe it. And trust is the action that I'm going to put my confidence in. I trust him. Do you? Do we? If you do, stand to your feet. I believe. Say it. I I have faith. faith. And I trust. I I believe. I I have faith. I I trust. Father, hear our prayer. Lord, I thank you in this 400 silent years that you're anything but silent and anything but inactive. And Lord, I pray today that we will glean out of this the history, the transition history of the people of God and of the biblical text and all of that. And we want to be 
We want to treat the Scriptures with integrity. But Lord, we understand the spiritual principles and truths that apply to our lives as they do to all the people of God. You're not silent. You're not inactive. And when everything is against us, or it feels that way, it's a time of preparation. And I pray in these times that you will sink deep in our hearts a new faith. That you will sink deep in our hearts a belief that what you say is true. And Lord, that you would sink in our hearts an attitude of I will trust in my good, generous, gracious, extravagant God. We give you praise and we give you thanks. Amen. Amen, Amen, church. God bless you.